Chapter 2, Stories, Metaphors, and Objectives Introduction The critical comments about educational research in the previous chapter are meant as a caution against overgeneralizing from limited principles and from particular limited results. No doubt most researchers are aware of the limits of their methods, but it is natural to try to stretch inferences from results as far as possible. We need whatever help we can get, and research on learning, development, motivation, etc. seems to offer some, if often opaque, guidance. The problem I am mainly concerned with here is the imbalance of our image of the child that results from focusing very largely on a limited range of thinking skills. The problem, I have suggested, is exacerbated by our focus having been directed by the dominant forms of research on those skills children are least good at. If, instead of focusing on the development of logical-mathematical capacities, we were to focus on the development of imaginative capacities, we would no doubt produce a quite different profile of intellectual development. Indeed, the main result, I suspect, would be to point up similarities between children's and adult thinking. Piaget's influential focus on children's logical-mathematical thinking has pointed up the area where the difference between children's and adult thinking are most pronounced. Piaget's work has, as a result, perhaps surprisingly, been most influential in education in a restrictive way. That is, most of the inferences one sees in education from his learning development theory concern what children cannot do. Some people might no doubt want to point out that Piaget has derived his theory from a study of play, dreams, and many other aspects of children's activity that are centrally concerned with imagination. The subject matter of his research has indeed included such material, but the aim has not been to study fantasy and imagination so much as to uncover from children's responses the logico-mathematical forms that underlie them. The free imaginative content is typically given short shrift. Quote, One would like to be able to rule out romancing with the same severity as those answers designed to please the questioner. End quote. Similarly, most research on children's story comprehension misses their imaginative qualities and focuses on the familiar range of graspable logical skills. If we continue to keep imaginative intellectual activity as our focus, we might be able to construct a more hopeful and less constrictive image of the child as learner. Such an image would, it seems to me, be more in keeping with our everyday experience of children's creative intellectual energy than is the Piagetian view of relative intellectual incompetence. This is not to say that we will now ignore what children typically seem unable to do, but rather that we will focus on what they most obviously can do and seem able to do best. In the previous chapter, for example, it was noted that some Piagetian research suggests that children do not typically, in elementary school years, develop a concept of historical causality. We can observe, however, that children clearly have available a concept of the kind of causality that keeps stories together and moves them along. Such a simple observation has an obvious educational implication. It is clearly insufficient to do a research study that concludes that causality is a formal operational concept in Piaget's sense and that young children thus cannot understand or use it, and then infer further that curriculum content requiring or using this concept should be excluded from the elementary school curriculum. Yet this very commonly is the kind of educational implication derived from Piaget's theory. Thus we see recommendations that in elementary schools we should always deal with experiences which, quote, emphasize direct contact with the physical aspects of objects and events, end quote. There are two educational problems with such common Piagetian recommendations. First, the theme of the previous chapter. They take logico-mathematical thinking as the whole of thinking. Their night sky is nothing but Piagetian moon. Second, they neglect the early stimulation and development of those concepts out of which the more formal logico-mathematical concept will grow. For example, the formal concept of causality may indeed be rare in young children, but a story concept of causality is clearly common. 
the latter is hardly unconnected with the former, and ignoring the latter is hardly a sensible way of encouraging development of the former. We see that a concept like causality does not suddenly appear as a formal concept used in history at about 16 years. Rather, it grows gradually from the uses we see in earliest stories to the more logical forms we see in history and science. Nor can we call the earlier forms simpler than the later. It is rather just less specialized. Without use of the earlier forms, the later forms will surely be less adequate. This same obvious point might be made about a whole range of concepts that young children are supposed to have no ability to use. My alternative approach, then, is to focus on the kinds of conceptual abilities children clearly have and use routinely. I will consider just a few features of the kind of stories that children find most engaging and observe what conceptual abilities must be in place for such stories to be meaningful. From this analysis, I will identify those features of stories that can become parts of a model for planning teaching that more fully uses children's conceptual abilities by drawing on the engaging and communicative powers of the story form. If the story is considered as a communicative medium, we will also be able to use our observations about its power and effectiveness to show some of the inadequacies of the objectives, content, methods, evaluation model. Story Rhythm Stories are narrative units. That they are units is important. They are distinguishable from other kinds of narratives in that they have particular, clear beginnings and ends. The most basic story begins once upon a time and concludes they lived happily ever after. Once upon a time begins something, and ever after does not refer to anything in particular, except that what began is now ended. Once upon a time creates an expectation of a particular kind. We are told that at some particular time and place something happened. This something will involve a conflict or problem of some kind, which the rest of the story will be taken up resolving. The story does not deal with anything except the problem set up in the beginning once it is underway. Everything in the story is focused on that central task. The weather is not incidental or arbitrary. It will affect either the action or the mood. If it does not, in a good story, it will simply be ignored. Stories, then, have clear means of determining what should be included and excluded. We recognize as bad stories those that include things that do not take the story forward. Each such item lets interest sag, and if there are too many of them, we stop reading or watching or listening. What happened next has to be answered by an incident or action that takes us towards some complication or resolution of the conflict set up in the beginning. There is, then, at the simplest level, a rhythm in stories. They set up an expectation at the beginning. This is elaborated or complicated in the middle, and is satisfied in the end. Stories are tied beginning to end by their satisfying the expectation set up in the beginning. Anything that does not contribute to or fit in with this rhythm is irrelevant to the story and should be excluded. If, in Cinderella, we were to follow one of the ugly sisters through her daily round, the story would sag. Such events are irrelevant to resolving the particular conflict set up in the beginning of the story. So we can observe a powerful principle of coherence and a criterion for selecting what is relevant at work in any good story. Such stories hold their power over us as long as all the events stick to and carry forward the basic rhythm. If we consider teaching in light of this cohesive principle of stories, we may conclude that the general observation is hardly novel, but it encourages us to look at it in a new way. The principle of organizing a lesson coherently is obvious but the comparison with the story form suggests new ways in which we might better achieve such coherence. How do we decide what and how much to include in a lesson? More material towards answering this will come in the next section, but here we might draw a first implication from the form of a well-wrought story. In those stories which children find most engaging, there are only those events and details which further the underlying rhythm, other facts and events that might be connected to those in the story, even if interesting in their own right, are left out. Each irrelevant item, each item that fails to carry forward the story, 
lets our engagement sag a little. Most stories can obviously bear some of this, but too much and the story is lost. Think of the classic folk tales. One thing that has happened to them in their centuries of transmission is that they have been honed down to the point where only essential details are included. Classic folk tales are, in this regard, a little like jokes. They both set up an expectation in the beginning that is ruthlessly followed to the end. The rhythms of jokes and classic folk tales are clearly memorable. We might forget stories and jokes, of course, but once started on one, the rhythm will usually carry us forward and fit the pieces into place. A model for teaching that draws on the power of the story, then, will ensure that we set up a conflict or sense of dramatic tension at the beginning of our lessons and units. Thus, we create some expectation that we will satisfy at the end. It is this rhythm of expectation and satisfaction that will give us a principle for precisely selecting content. Consider how much content is forgotten after a lesson or unit is finished. What purpose did that forgotten content serve? Well, no doubt, some purpose is served occasionally. We do not want to neglect the fact that some forgotten content, nevertheless, may remain in the structure of children's understanding of a topic. I don't remember who opposed the settlement, but I know there was some opposition. Nevertheless, it is surely reasonable to conclude that much forgotten content, and no doubt much that is remembered too, plays no significant educational role. It remains, in whitehead sense, inert. The implication from this reflection on the power of the story form is that we should concentrate more on simplifying and clarifying our selection of content according to the rhythm set up at the beginning of our lesson or unit. We need, then, to be more conscious of the importance of beginning with a conflict or problem whose resolution at the end can set such a rhythm in motion. Our choice of that opening conflict, then, becomes crucial. Our first consideration must be on what is most important about our topic, and we will identify importance in terms of those profound abstract concepts which children clearly already understand. Good, bad, survival, destruction, security, fear, brave, cowardly, and so on. The rhythms that stories follow are a reflection of further conceptual abilities of children. That is, whatever conceptual abilities are involved in recognizing conflicts and problems and following their elaboration and knowing when they have been satisfactorily resolved, children clearly have. Nor are these trivial intellectual abilities. They are complex and profound. As the study of linguistics has enlarged our understanding of the great complexity of the intellectual task of mastering language, so the study of poetics gives us some hints of the even greater complexity involved in mastery of the story form. Our great educational task is not to analyze these skills in detail, but rather to observe them and recognize more clearly something of the range and profundity of the learning power that children have. Binary Opposites One of the most obvious structural devices we can see in children's stories is the use of binary opposites. Embedded in the story or embodied by the story are conflicts between good and bad, courage and cowardice, fear and security, and so on. The characters and events embody these underlying abstract conflicts. These abstract binary opposites serve as criteria for the selection and organization of the content of the story, and they serve as the main structuring lines along which the story moves forward. Let us consider these connected functions one at a time. If we set up a story with a wicked stepmother and a good girl, like Cinderella, we begin with a conflict between these embodiments of good and bad. The selection of incidents and further characters, then, will be determined by the need to show the goodness of the one and the badness of the other. The incidents in which the stepmother is cruel to cinders and favors her own unkind and vain daughters all elaborate the one binary pole. The unfailing kindness and self-sacrificing modesty of Cinderella place her as embodiment of the opposite pole. The story is the embodied conflict of the good and bad. In this way, then, the binary opposites that underlie our story serve as criteria for the selection of the content 
the characters and incidents which form the story. These binary opposites connectedly provide the main structural lines along which the story moves forward. Having gathered the conflict at the beginning, we monitor the development of the story through the incidents showing the badness of the stepmother. She tries to frustrate all of Cinderella's wishes and to destroy her one modest hope of attending the prince's ball. Our expectation is to see contrasting developments of Cinderella's goodness. Once these are vividly clear, the conflict can then go forward through the actions of the good helpers, the attempts to frustrate these actions by the bad opposition, and so on to the final satisfying resolution in favor of the good. We even get some mediation in some versions of the story, as the stepmother and ugly sisters recognize the error of their ways, and through Cinder's goodness, they too live happily ever after. Wherever we look in children's stories, and in their own, no doubt derivative narratives, we find such binary conflicts. We are not here concerned with psychological explanations, so much as simply observing their functions and power in making clear and engaging structures of meaning. Also, we should not use such observations to suggest that these features of children's thinking are somehow unique to children. If we pause and consider how we make sense of events we hear about on the news, say, we can see these kinds of binary opposite organizers busily at work. They seem to be the first stage in our organizing and making meaningful new information. If we hear, for example, that there has just been a revolution in an African or South American state, we first search with our binary organizers to orient ourselves to the event. We want to know whether the rebels were supplied with arms by the CIA, or whether they had Cuban advisors, for example. That is, we first search for events or facts that allow us to fit the information into our already formed binary ideological structures. If we cannot fit the news account clearly into such structures, it remains in danger of becoming meaningless. Unfortunately, perhaps, the news media that are eager to engage us tend to present information already embedded in such contexts. This tends to restrict our understanding of the world's complexity to the basic unmediated binary opposites of childhood. So our media present political information very much in terms of good and bad competing superpowers, and news stories that can be fitted into that most easily engaging structure get prominent display, and those that cannot tend to get short shrift. In children's stories, however, the mediation that is appropriate for adults has not yet taken place, and so clarity of meaning requires that we structure information on binary opposites. This does not mean that we have to present things crudely as good or bad, as I will show in the following chapter. So these binary opposites are not only of use in organizing stories, but we see them prominently in all kinds of areas in which we organize and make sense of things. If our concern in planning teaching is to communicate clearly an array of material, we might wisely consider how binary opposites might be used to help. For my model, then, I will build in a way of using binary opposites as a means of organizing and selecting content. Because our aim is educational, unlike that of most news media, we will also want to build in a reminder that we should be seeking mediation of the binary opposites we start with. Effective meaning. Clearly, stories are concerned with effective responses. A good storyteller plays our emotions as a good violinist plays a violin. We resonate with the rhythm of the binary conflict, the events that carry it forward, and its resolution. Education, seen through the dominant planning and research models, is a largely logical and narrowly rational business. In this view, education is an area where there is little room for our emotional lives. For this reason, the effective is usually considered a matter only for the arts, the educational margin, or frills. As I tried to show in the previous chapter, this view is a product of a misplaced empiricism and of a restricted conception of learning and, not least, of the child. We make sense of the world and experience affectively no less than cognitively. Indeed, the separation of the two is a product of the same research programs. 
Do we make sense of a story affectively or cognitively? Well, of course, both work together. We are not divided into two distinct parts. As we hear melody and harmony as one, though we can separate them in analysis, so we make sense of the world and experience in a unitary way, regardless of what distinctions we might make for research purposes. The dominant model and its associated research programs have tended to suppress the effective aspects of learning. Consequently, they have drawn on only a divided part of children's capacities. A further contribution to teaching that can come from drawing on the story form is a more balanced appeal to children's learning capacities. By using the story form in planning teaching, we can reinstate this important and neglected aspect of children's thinking. How stories engage our effective responses, then, is important for us to notice. We will want to build such powers into our model as far as possible, allowing for the differences between typical fictional material and typical classroom instructional material. We can observe at least two ways in which stories engage us effectively. First, we can observe that stories are largely about affective matters. They are about how people feel. These feelings can either provide the motives for actions, or they can provide the point and result of actions. If Cinderella's motives were not kind, springing from generous feelings, much of the point of the story would be lost. Also, we can readily understand such emotions as causal elements that provide the dynamic of stories. Jack was angry and decided to get his own back. He stood up, crossed the room, and opened the door. Clearly, Jack is going out to get his own back. Such causes of actions present no comprehension problems to young children. From this observation, we can see the importance of human emotions and intentions in making things meaningful. To present knowledge cut off from human emotions and intentions is to reduce its effective meaning. This effective meaning also seems especially important in providing access to knowledge and engaging us in knowledge. This lesson from our observation of stories will become particularly significant in the discussion of teaching mathematics and sciences in Chapter 4. These are the areas that suffer most from being stripped of their effective associations. We tend to teach mathematics and science as inhuman structures of knowledge, almost taking pride in their logical and inhuman precision. There are two problems with this approach. The first is that it is not true in any sense. The second is that it is educationally disastrous. Later, I will discuss ways in which we can rehumanize mathematics and science, seeing the knowledge in its proper, living context of human emotions and intentions. The second way in which stories engage us effectively follows from the fact that they end. I dwelt earlier on some implications of the obvious point that stories end. They do not just stop, but rather they satisfy some conflict set up by their beginning. It is this wrapping up of the story that gives it also a part of its effective power. In life or in history, there are no endings, just one damn thing after another. The patterns we impose in order to determine meaning are unlike those of the story. The patterns of our lives or of history are always provisional. Something may happen to make us reinterpret, repattern them. The uniqueness of the story form is that it creates its own world, in which the meaning of events, and thus what we should feel about them, is fixed. Even real-life ugly sisters are on Cinderella's side. We know we have reached the end of the story when we know how to feel about all the events and characters that make it up. What is completed by the ending of a good story is the pattern that fixes the meaning and our feelings about the contents. From this observation, we can see that our model needs to provide some way of ending a lesson or unit that has something more in common with the way stories end than with ending because we have covered all the content identified as relevant. Our beginning, then, needs to set up some binary conflict or problem, and our end needs to resolve it in some way if we are to take advantage of stories' power to be effectively engaging. Metaphors, Analogues, and Objectives In the ancient world and through the medieval period, people felt their hearts pumping away in their chests, just as we do. 
but they did not know what was going on in there. There are endless accounts in ancient medical speculation and in the myths and stories of the world of what that bumpity bump in the chest might be. It seems so obvious to us. The heart is a pump. Blood comes out in spurts when we cut an artery, because the pump is working at the rate the blood spurts. The function of the heart became clear only after the invention of the pump. Indeed, as Jonathan Miller argues, the function of the heart became knowable only after the invention of the pump. Once people understood how a pump worked, they could use that knowledge to make sense of the heart's function. With the advance of technology, an analogy was provided which enabled understanding of things which were otherwise mysterious. We have within us, of course, another functioning organ whose workings are not at all clear to us. We have no adequate mechanical analogs of the brain. We have seen constant attempts to make sense of it in terms of increasingly sophisticated technology. The earliest analogs were natural. Late medieval textbooks represent the brain as a kind of tree with knowledge categorized in various ways as leaves or branches from a trunk representing, often, theology. Later, it is represented in terms of clockwork. Then, with a better understanding of the mechanics of the body, we find the brain represented as made up of parts that functioned like muscles, leading to faculty psychology. In this view, the parts or faculties of the brain grew and remained limber through exercise, much as a muscle does. Once the telephone and then telephone exchanges were built, we find those providing an analogy for thinking about the brain. This was considered especially appropriate, as it was discovered that there was also some kind of electrical activity going on in the brain itself. It seems fair to say that behaviorism, as an overall theory about human behavior, owes more to the telephone exchange than it does to observations of behavior. To say this about behaviorism is not intended as contemptuously dismissive criticism. Our thinking is suffused with metaphors and analogies. There is an important sense in which we use the world to think with. We can use the telephone exchange as a tool with which to think about the brain. The analogy is hidden in the theory, but it is provided the means whereby we can get some conceptual grasp on it. We need, however, to be constantly concerned that our analogies are adequate. The pump is an adequate analogy for making sense of the heart. The telephone exchange is, it seems to be becoming increasingly recognized, an inadequate analogy for the brain. In any scientific field, however, a bad theory is better than no theory at all. It is the inadequate analogy that yields a bad theory, but it is in perceiving the inadequacy of the theory that we can construct a better one. The demise of behaviorism, one might reasonably argue, owes less to the assaults of competing theories and more to the development of the computer. The computer allows us, analogically, to think about brain functioning in a more sophisticated way than does the telephone exchange. The computer tends thereby to destroy the basis of behaviorism, but it is itself, of course, merely a relatively simple machine, and so provides us still with mechanistic analogies for thinking about the brain. While it might be fun to continue with such notions, I should return to the point. These comments on metaphorical thinking and the use of analogies are intended as an introduction to reflecting on the adequacy of the dominant model used in planning teaching. In what way? Well, another great technical innovation of this century was the assembly line. Instead of building, for example, an automobile in one place, bringing the components to it, and having the same gang of workers do all the different constructive jobs, the assembly line maximized efficiency by the methods now familiar to us all. The various bits and pieces of the automobile were gathered together at different places along the line, ready to be slotted into place at the appropriate time. The workers each had specialized functions, which they performed in time to the movement of the line. The initial design determined every detail of the process. It is perhaps trite to ask, what does that remind you of? One thing it might remind us of is the curriculum. 
we have our overall aim and the problem becomes how best to organize its components into a sequence in order to attain that aim at the end of the process. Education is not so much like an assembly line as that the assembly line provides an analogy which people can use to think about education. Such analogical thinking need not be conscious. No doubt people could understand the heart without conscious reference to the pump, and behaviorists might even resist consciously connecting their conception of behavior with the telephone exchange. But once we understand the pump or the telephone exchange, we can make sense of processes which we see in analogous terms. Even though the analogous connection may not be conscious, there is a strong tendency for the language associated with the comprehended process to invade discussion of that which is used to comprehend. Thus, Coverley, early in the century, could write that schools are, quote, factories in which the raw products, children, are to be shaped and fashioned into products to meet the various demands of life, end quote. And so the process of planning teaching can be represented in a model that is an analog of the assembly line. We first design our final product, or state our objectives. Then we assemble the parts, or decide what materials and content we will need in order to achieve those objectives. Then we organize workers with appropriate skills along the line, or choose the methods appropriate to organize most effectively the teaching of that content. And finally, we arrange some means of determining whether each product is satisfactory, or we evaluate whether our objectives have been attained. Now, this does not mean that there must be something wrong with planning teaching by means of a model that is an analogous extension of the assembly line. The pump made sense of the heart. The question here, however, is whether the assembly line leads to a model that is adequate for its educational task. The adequacy of such a model is not usually raised, however, because we forget that it is an analogous extension from a stage of technological development. Let us then raise the question of whether the dominant model is adequate for its educational task. A number of points might be made that can leave us feeling at least uncomfortable about the adequacy of the model. Most generally, derived from the assembly line analogy, is the requirement that the first step in planning teaching requires that one pre-specify precisely one's objectives. As the plan of automobile determines every aspect of the assembly line, so our, quote, educational objectives become the criteria by which materials are selected, content is outlined, instructional procedures are developed, and tests and examinations are prepared, end quote. Now, if we use the dominant model and its hidden, persuasive analogy as the means to think about planning teaching, the first requirement will seem obvious. Of course you have to start with precise objectives, or you will not know what to do, as you cannot organize an assembly line without a precisely designed automobile to provide the criterion for the construction and organization of the parts and the arrangements of the requisite tools and construction skills. What we have to do here, however, is to try to use our understanding of the reality of education to reflect back on the adequacy of this model. This is difficult. Normally we use the model to think with, here we are to try to think about what we usually think with. The first simple observation is that in education we do not expect, nor should we aim, to have students become identical products in general, and in particular we do not expect each student even to learn a particular lesson the same way as any other student. There are endless ways of being and becoming educated. We may try to specify certain necessary conditions, which may form a core curriculum, but the sheer diversity of individual students and of social and cultural contexts makes even this a most problematic task. Our observation in the classroom shows us the endless and unpredictable ways in which students use knowledge. What we properly value in education are these unpredictable and spontaneously creative uses of knowledge. Clearly, we can say that the imaginative creativity of children 
does not prevent us specifying certain objectives precisely. Children can then use in individually unpredictable ways what was the objective of the lesson. But the point here is that in the unpredictable use, the spontaneity, the creative imagination that is at the educational heart of the matter, what the model does is leave this out in the cold and suggest that the heart of the matter is the controllable, predictable, pre-specifiable part. It is by such means that a model can deform an enterprise it is supposed to serve. This is not an argument against the model, in the sense of a logically convincing refutation. Rather, it is one reason why we should feel uncomfortable with the model. What is most valuable is left out, and teachers are not encouraged to focus their attention on it. Relatedly, if we reflect not just on the diversity of things a teacher might hope to have happen in an average class, but the ways in which all kinds of associations of ideas, particular hobbies or interests, wonder and humor, that might purely incidentally be stimulated, we may consider whether the reality of educational engagements is inappropriately represented as planned means working carefully along a pre-specified path to precisely delineated objectives. Of course, we can organize our curricula and lessons this way, but such a process seems not to fit some obvious features of education. In the assembly line and the analogous model, the product is made up of the pieces put together in the right way in the right sequence. The educated person is not merely the accumulated product of all that has been learned. The more basic problem at the heart of this objection is subtle, and again, not a compelling argument so much as a point of view from which the inadequacy of the model is pointed to. The assembly line model sees the educational product as a carefully planned accumulation of parts. Human understanding, however, does not seem to accumulate this way. Perhaps I can better point to the inadequacy of the old technology-derived model by contrasting it by analogy with the newer technology. In the old model, human understanding is represented as analogous to a two-dimensional picture. In order to compose the picture, we need only get all the pieces together and fit them into their places. But if we think of human understanding as more like a hologram than a two-dimensional picture, we see the poverty of the older view. If a hologram is broken in pieces, each piece contains an image of the whole. The laser will not show simply a part of the picture but will show a fuzzy image of the whole. As pieces are added, the whole picture becomes clearer. The curriculum is not adequately conceptualized if it is viewed as like a two-dimensional picture that can be completed by putting the pieces together one by one. Rather, it is a matter of coalescence and increasing clarity, in whose composition linear processes are inadequate. My point again is not that the dominant model is in any sense wrong. Rather, it embodies a way of thinking about education and encourages ways of thinking about teaching that are in profound and subtle ways inadequate. The alternative I will describe in the following chapter is also, of course, inadequate. But its virtue, I think, is that it is less inadequate than what I am proposing it should replace. Without the dominant model, of course, there could not have been this recommended alternative. The assembly line has become a fairly general metaphor for dehumanizing working conditions. Some automakers have tried a number of alternatives to the assembly line, in order to reduce the deadening and de-skilled routines it encourages. The assembly line is saved, however, by its perfectly attuned robot servants. The dehumanizing carries over, it seems to me, into the planning model for teaching, derived by analogy from the assembly line. It is tended to reduce and deform education into a process of accumulating sequences of measurable knowledge and skills. It is tended to suppress, in the name of greater efficiency, the organic complexity of education, and to disguise the fact that we can adequately measure and evaluate only relatively trivial aspects of education.
In conclusion to this rather imprecise discussion, imprecise because we are dealing with things we have no adequate analogies to enable us to make precise sense of, we might briefly reflect on how well the assembly line works as an analogy for telling a story. Part of my point is the sense of strain we feel thinking of a story in terms of an assembly line. And yet, we can do so. We need to have our product or objective clear at the beginning. We need to organize the content, decide on our narrative procedures, and prepare some way of discovering whether we have successfully got the story across. The point is that this just is not a very useful way to think about how to plan telling a story. The analogy at the basis of the comparison simply does not fit very well. It misses the point of the story form, in the way that a clockwork orange misses the point of fruit. What I will turn to now is trying to show that telling a story is a better analogy than the assembly line for teaching, and that the story form provides a more adequate model for planning teaching. Conclusion Telling a story is a way of establishing meaning. Fictional stories tend to be concerned very largely with effective meaning, whereas in education our concern is more comprehensive. We want cognitive and effective meaning together. Because the dominant model has tended to emphasize the cognitive at the expense of the effective, drawing on some aspects of the story form for planning teaching can enable us to achieve a better balance. The result in practice of such abstract matters is clearer access to material for children and greater engagement with it. The sense of story I am dealing with here is not so much the typical fictional kind, but something nearer to what a newspaper editor means when he asks the reporter, what's the story on this? The editor is asking for an account of the particular events, embedded in some more abstract context which readers already understand. The editor basically wants to know how the particulars fit into some binary conflict. How do these particulars give body to the ongoing story of good versus bad, or security versus danger, or political right versus left, etc.? The editor's question is one about how this particular knowledge is to be made meaningful and engaging to readers. So when I advocate some of the features of the story form, it is in order to make new knowledge meaningful and engaging to children. I will want to build into my model, then, some means of establishing at least some degree of story-like rhythm. This requires a particular kind of beginning that sets up an expectation and a conclusion that satisfies this expectation. Such an overall form wraps the beginning and the end of a lesson or unit more tightly together than is usual. The new model also will be alert to the importance of understanding binary opposites for engaging interest and carrying it along. They also will provide a key criterion for the selection and organization of content. I've spent some time discussing the inappropriateness of thinking about teaching by means of a model analogous to the assembly line because the major heresy of my model is that it does not begin with the statement of objectives. Indeed, objectives are not mentioned anywhere. In telling a story, one does not begin by stating objectives, and yet stories are wonderful tools for efficiently organizing and communicating meaning. A major point of this book is that teaching is centrally concerned with efficiently organizing and communicating meaning, and so we will sensibly use a planning model derived from one of the world's most powerful and persuasive ways of doing this. Objectives-based models are products of a particular phase of industrialization. They are the result of attempts to technologize teaching in inappropriate ways. They result in clockwork oranges. It is time to move to something more fruitful.